Welcome to the Knowledge Entrepreneurs Show, where we celebrate the innovators driving change in the education industry. At Edison OS, we've worked with over 500 knowledge entrepreneurs to turn their edtech ideas into profitable businesses. Hi, Sean. Good morning. Welcome to the Knowledge Entrepreneurs Show. Thank you so much for taking your time out for being here with me today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Likewise, Sean. Sean, first question, what are you doing now? Well, I, I, run my own, I, I founded my own company a few years ago, and I assist students in getting into college and law school. Uh, I do SAT prep, ACT prep, and LSAT prep. Um, for That gets you into law school in the United States and Canada. It's the required exam. Right. Got it. And uh, when did you start this? I started in 2004. I had been um, with the Princeton Review as both an instructor and as a, I guess, mid-level executive in their marketing department. And um, I, I had initially come into the Princeton Review as an LSAT instructor. But one of the requirements of the company is no matter what you do in that company, you also have to learn at least the product. And I learned how to teach the SAT and I started teaching the SAT and I fell in love with teaching. It's, uh, it's so nice to work with ambitious young people and help them finance their educations, finance their dreams, finance their futures. And I teach a lot of first generation Americans. So I'm not just finding, helping them finance their dreams but their parents' dreams and making sure that the sacrifices their parents made to get here you know, blossom into a good future for their children. And I think that's an it's important work. Great. So you're saying you didn't uh, join Princeton Review as an instructor. You were doing other things and then you kind of uh, became a teacher. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I had I had a good academic background. I was a national merit something scholar um, and I, I, I went to law school. So I took all the tests and I did well on all the tests. Um, right. And I was working at the company and I, I just sort of transitioned into teaching. And I felt that I could offer my students more than they could. I felt that I could offer smaller, more personalized instructions, extend the length of the course, um, and teach in a different way to maximize, to leverage knowledge, to, to leverage information in ways that, that maybe large companies either can't or won't. Um, because they, you know, when a company builds a product, it's expensive and it's hard to change and there, there becomes inertia. I learned that I can be more flexible and more adaptive and more responsive to changes. Yours, yours is a very, I've only heard of people, you know, joining as an instructor and then, you know, doing a lot of other things, but yours is the other way around. Now, uh, may I ask you to share your journey? You know, what led you to, you did your law, what led you to join the Princeton Review? So what was your journey like? I was an art history major and um, it's really hard to get a job in art history. No one cares about art history. I loved it. Um, I loved the major. So I went to law school and... The practice of law in the United States, especially in where I'm from in South Florida, can be brutal. Um, very competitive, a lot of cutthroat, a lot of, you know, it's just it's just not a fun way to make a living. But I didn't know anything about business, nothing. I couldn't read a spreadsheet. I, I didn't know what Excel was. So I went and I got my, I went, I got my MBA and my first job after getting my, my degree was the Princeton Review. And I worked in the marketing department and helped them develop and sell uh, their programs. And the Princeton Review requires that the, the, the instructors get to learn the products. And then they, I was effective at it and they put me in the classroom. And I really fell in love with the classroom experience, working with people, getting to know them, interacting. You know, it's, 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 it's nice to be able to work a spreadsheet, but it's so much nicer to talk to a person. Yeah, awesome. This is, this is one of the most unique uh, career paths that I've come across. Trust me. I mean, no one is <laughs> law. And then, you know, you do your degree and then you join Princeton Review uh, from a marketing point of view and then you become an instructor. Wow. Quite quite a transition that. And, you know, when you told it can be brutal practicing law in the place that you are, it reminded me of the show called Is Better Call Saul. Have you heard of that? Have you? Oh, yes, uh, yes, of course. Yes, yes. Right. So when you Saul say would... uh, you got to be like Saul Goodman. Is that what you're saying? Saul would pass for an honest lawyer in Miami. Oh my God! Okay, <laughs> okay. He was at least in Texas, I think, Albuquerque, exactly, and places like that. Like that. Okay. Oh, you're saying he's honest compared? Great. Yeah. Um, Sean, I want to probe a little bit more about your transition within the Princeton Review, right? For people who are maybe uh, in a position similar to you uh, back in 2004, uh, but you know who are like that right now. So, uh, did you volunteer 
or you know did the management kind of see that you had the potential and offered something how did you kind of get into that instructor space from being in the marketing space or was it just easy i've always been a pretty good communicator i i, I thought i thought that was a skill and my law school experience helped build that in me you, you have yeah. to communicate you have to do moot court and mock trial but um as i said prince review has part of as part of its requirements for its its executives that they have to learn the product they have to be trained to teach right. and um there was a group of students and they were short teachers and they said well you're already trained teach the course and if you don't feel comfortable we'll find someone else from the first day i enjoyed it and my students did really well so they could put me back in the classroom and i started to teach more and more different things and then i helped develop programs i helped write part of their uh their law school module and I saw how important a good curriculum is in designing it. And then I started getting more involved in that and came to enjoy, came to realize that despite the fact that Prince Rube has solid products and programs, once we notice something is not ideal, it took too long to change. Right. And I said, no, no, I, I, if, if these things need to change and they need to change now, so I'm gonna go find my own way to change them. And I did, I started oh. my own company. Right, right. So that's how because you if, start. If, if students are if students are in immediate need of change, and you're at a big company, it'll take two to three years to develop the entire thing. Whereas if you if you do the research immediately, you can turn on a dime and do things better. So that I'm going to get yes. Yeah, sorry, sorry, sorry. Please, please continue. So that that ability staying small has its disadvantages too. Economies of scope and scale are are fantastic, but size can be an enemy. Especially look what happened in COVID. The whole industry had to turn like that. And the smaller companies did better than the bigger ones because we were ready to do it because we know how to do it. Right. Got it. I'm going to come back to that, Sean, but I just want to ask you another thing. You spent about roughly six years with Princeton Review. Yes. Um, and would you say uh, six years was a long time before you decided to start your own or six years wasn't bad? You know, I was quick enough to start my own. How it do you see that? You know what? I enjoyed the people I worked with. I really did. I worked with some really smart, really, really just quality human beings. So, right. you know, you, if you're in a good place, you never think, oh, I have to leave. But then I realized my primary responsibility isn't, is I have a responsibility to my coworkers, but my primary responsibility is these kids. And if I know I can do it better, I need to find a way to do it better. And that was the right. ultimate impetus to do it better for them. So I, I stayed, but not longer than I should have. I learned a lot. But again, a good a good crew will keep you there. You know, enjoy. You come to work every day; it's a pleasure. You're not looking to leave. Right, right. Sean, you know, uh, you said that you wanted to start your own thing because you wanted to do things a certain way, and Princeton Review wasn't ready to implement those changes. So, uh, if they had probably, uh, you know, listened to you and were kind of ready to implement those changes, you wouldn't have started your own thing. Uh, so how do you look at that whole situation? You know, uh, is it like, yeah, just one well, of I, I, I think they were, I, I really do think that the companies like that are too big to implement the changes. You have to fight too hard for them. When you know it's the right thing to do, when you know it works, it's just time to do it. Um, there's a lot of things that keep you, the security of your own, of a paycheck, the security of health insurance, the security of having a place to go every day, having someone else do all of the detail, the marketing, the printing. There's comfort there. But, Right. At what expense? And at some point, you got to like, no, I, I, I have to do it this way because I know it. I just know it's better. I just know it's better. I know long term, it's going to be better for everyone, me, and more importantly, the people we're serving. Because no matter what area of education you're in, whether it's software, whether it's platforms, ultimately, it's about helping young people. That's really what it is. And if you know right. you can do that better, do it. Right. You just got to do it. Great. You know, thank you for sharing this because I wanted to extract exactly this uh, thing from you because as an instructor, it's not about um, what is right or what's good for them, uh, you know, with respect to whether coming out and starting something or sticking to a company. They just have to see what works for them and, uh, you know, what kind of, you know, keeps them there or what doesn't keep them there. And for you, you had the strong urge of wanting to do a certain thing. You were you had a lot of conviction about that and you wanted to start. So that's how you came out and started the knowledge cooperative. And and I do understand every company has an obligation to its shareholders. I get that. And I would never begrudge a company for making the bottom line important. 
But for me, the bottom line is my student scores, not the profit. So I get I got to do that. I got to put the I got to put my numbers instead of in front of the other numbers. The numbers of achievement, score improvement, college admissions, law school admissions. That that became my bottom line. And I know in, in a publicly traded company, you can't do that. If you told your shareholders that, you'd be in court the next day. So there, there again, there's up there is an upside to being a big company, but there's also a downside. So I like what I'm doing because I can I can put I can put the focus where I think it needs to be. Right, right. Sean, going back to those things that you wanted changed in Prince Interview, but they couldn't. Can you talk about those, you know, what are those changes that you wanted and what the things that I would, I, 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 ex- I extended the length of the program. So and again, they have a very effective program, but it's not for everybody. Most of these test prep companies will sell you a package, a package for six to eight to 12 weeks, two to three hour classes once a week, two or three practice tests and hope for the best. With law school, with the LSAT, it's even more brutal because the LSAT is a very tough test. Six weeks, $3,000, three hour classes. It's not effective. To, to, be, to, to learn effectively, you have to draw the program out longer, more shorter classes, um, smaller class sizes. It is not as cost effective, I know, but the results are substantially better. Substantially better. Um, because, to, to, for example, let's take the LSAT. There are things in the LSAT that you've never been taught. Ways of doing logic games, logical reasoning, analytical reasoning. Without a foundation, you're just playing catch up. So it, 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 they're just starting to learn to hit their stride within six weeks and boom, the course is over. I don't do that. We go four to six months and the scores, the scores show it. My students, if they work the program correctly, they only pay for law school if they want to, because I will help them find schools where they have the, obli- the, the ability to go for free. Right. Now, if you want to, if you want to pay for Stanford, pay for Stanford. It's a fantastic law school. You're going to make the money back, you know, but if you're taking student loan debt to go to a, a school that struggles with bar passage, no, that's a terrible decision. So the other reason I like the longer course is it lets me know the students better. What kind of schools are best for them? Some schools will, some students are not going to do well at Ohio state because it's just too big. Some schools are not going to do well at Marymount because it's just too small. So I get a sense of their personalities and see where they fit culturally um, in terms of how they respond to an environment. Too big, too small, urban, rural, um, all kinds of factors. You don't don't get to learn that in six weeks, but you do get to learn it in six months. And it also takes a lot of pressure off the kids. Treating it as you have six weeks to learn how to do this and it determines the rest of your life. These kids haven't even picked their prom dress yet. But they have to pick their future. No, I don't. That that level of that level of pressure is just not. It's not conducive to to real growth and real education. So that's why that's the one that's the main thing I wanted to change the length of the course. But also because of being a smaller company, I can adapt to changes. For example, COVID. I was immediately able to flip my program with COVID. And I've continued to update the program, adding more math basics, because COVID math was a disaster. Um, Adding more fundamentals. Reteaching grammar. They just because that's the stuff that the teacher couldn't do. And being being an entrepreneur, you're allowed to make those changes quickly. And there's there's no risk. I can't I'm not gonna lose my job. If I'm an executive at a company and I recommend something, it doesn't quite work out as planned, you're gone. You get to tinker, you get to experiment, you get to work, you get to talk to other people outside of your company. You get to collaborate in ways that you can't really in a corporate setting because you're all on, you're all rowing the same way, but if you're rowing the wrong way, that's bad. So those were the two fundamental things that I, I thought I needed to change. The ability to adapt and extending the length of the courses. Got it, Sean. Sean, in your experience, what were the problems that you were starting to see while you were at the Princeton Review, uh, you know, that triggered you to think of a longer program? Again, the, the, the intensity of the pressure that the kids would share with me is like, what if I don't do well? What, what do I have to pay again? Well, so a lot of programs have money back guarantees and Princeton Review did. Um, but again, you, you're starting over, meaning you're starting the same program over 
you're not doing new things. So if, if, the, if the program didn't work the first time, I don't know that it's going to work the second time. During a longer program, we can, we can try different things, different ways of conveying the information, different ways of learning, more homework, less homework, more that kind of thing. So the length allows me to adapt each student a lot more than a six-week program and to find something that works for the student. Because again, not all students are the same and not all students have the same time to commit because there's extra colleagues. And not only all the same students have the desire to um, perform because a lot of them are here because, or go to, go to test prep classes because their parents insist. But over time, yeah. if I get to know them, I can explain how important it really is for them. I like to tell my students that my course is the best pay. The, it could be their best paying part-time job ever because if they do what I say, it can save them a half a million dollars. Because some colleges, University of Miami, my office is three blocks from the University of Miami. It's $90,000 a right. year now. Right. I can save you $400,000 if you listen to me. And then that, that they get. So that's the one. That's, that's, that Sorry, Sean, I lost you for a little bit. That's okay. Can you hear me? Yes, yes, I hear you perfectly well. So what I was saying was that over time, I, I can build trust. And, and so for the students who don't want to be here because their parents make them, I let them know this could be the best paying part-time job you've ever had. If you do what I say, I can save you a half a million dollars. Or to my law students, there is a giant difference in starting salaries from going to a so-so law school to going to Harvard. You go to a so-so law school, you're going to be making 70, 80 to start, and you're going to have debt. You go to Harvard, you're coming out with five or six job offers at a quarter of a million dollars a year each. So I, I can incentivize them financially as well. Different students have to be reached different ways. The financial incentive seems to work. Yeah, yeah. Great. Sean, uh, you spoke about all the benefits that you got with a, you know, a job like the one that you had the Princeton Review. But then, you know, when you had to move out and start your own, how did you navigate the transition? So many transitions that happen while you do that, right? Uh, on different aspects of your life. So how do you handle them all? Initially, I didn't sign a long-term lease. I got, I got a space in a temporary office, which saved a lot. Um, they had a conference room. I kept the classroom small. I uh, minimized expenses. I uh, moved into a smaller apartment. I did all of the things I needed to do to put the company first because I knew it was a long-term investment. So yes, there are personal sacrifices you have to make. There are sleepless nights, obviously, like, oh God, I, what if no one wants to hire me? Um, so there, yeah, there are risks but you have to think about the long-term and you have to think what your goals are. And if you are committed to it, you know, if you know what you're doing is right, stick to it. It's, it's easy to go and say, you know what? I'm tired of working 70 hours this week. I can just get a job someplace. And that's always, I guess it's always that option, but that's just not how I'm built. So yes, I didn't, I didn't sign a long-term lease. I didn't, I didn't take on any debt. I didn't take on any debt. I didn't borrow money. I didn't get investors. Now that, that won't work for everybody. I get that. But, Fortunately, in test prep, most of the information's up here. So if I can bring that information, it, it, it reduces cost and overhead. I also realized that I had to stop using paper. Everyone brings a tablet or a laptop now. Because that one, the test is moving to tablet and laptop, but printing is an enormous expense. And if you could avoid printing, avoid printing. Um, and I didn't invest in expensive marketing and PR firms. I relied a lot on word of mouth for a while. Um, but always, I was always not aggressive with it, but social media, daily posts, reminding people when test dates are, giving information to the clients so they realize there is value added, um, that I'm always aware of when, when the tests are coming, just putting it out there, get, letting people know, oh, it's test, it's test time, let's call Sean, or let's call his company. Because... One, it's more effective, I think, if the marketing is personal or it has a personalized message than just generic, you know, signage and stuff like that. Um, and two, it also reinforces the idea of expertise. I'm the person who knows this. I'm the person who knows when the test dates are. I will take care of your son. They will register on time. You're not paying late fees, all of that stuff. So minimizing expenses is hugely important, but you can minimize, you can minimize expenses without being... I don't want to say cheap, but you can minimize expenses without falling into the cracks. 
just stay on top of things, you know? Don't waste money. Don't hire fancy consultants who are gonna help you do this or do that. Talk to other people. Exchange ideas with people who know more than you do. Because I've learned that I talked to chiropractors who were very effective marketers. It's a lot, a lot like my business, right? It's based on personal knowledge, personal information. They showed me, they taught me, here's what I do that's effective. Don't waste your money on this, focus more on that. You know, don't get an office with a fancy lobby, no one cares. They care about results. You know, don't, there's no need to have coffee and donuts for your students every day, no one cares, right? Just those little things add up though. But know everyone's name, know their parents' name, give everyone your cell phone number, because yes, there are business, there are there are boundaries, but there are emergencies. Let them know me. Hey, I, I I didn't get into this college. Can we meet and talk for my second college? Hey, I had a real I, I had a panic attack during my test. What do we do? So be, being accessible is that's a great way to reduce cost but improve value. Awesome, awesome, Sean. Thank you for that. But cost reduction is huge for anyone who wants to jump out there. Do not spend money you don't have to spend. Whoever said it takes money to make money already had money. Yeah, yeah. They probably didn't get into debt to right. kind of, you know, put that money yeah. to make money. Yeah. yeah. That's also yeah. not the most comfortable thing in the world. And I've tried to avoid it as much as I, I have a long-term lease now. Um, I do have, and, and it works. I have it. So there are, you know, I was able to build to that. And I'm happy I did. It's my space. I, 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 I there's no, None of that, but I did start, I started one of those temporary offices and it worked out well for the first year and a half. I grew out of it, found good opportunity, found a great place, convenient, all that stuff. But if you can minimize expense without sacrificing the quality, absolutely do it. Absolutely do it. Because you're your own shareholder, right? Sole uh, shareholder also. Yeah. Yeah. And Sean, uh, I don't know if there is a story, but you know, you can share whatever about getting your first student of the knowledge cooperative. I remember exactly when it happened. Um, it was, it was actually, it was some students who came to me and said, and some parents who said, it's time for you to do your own thing. Um, and I had a non-compete agreement with the Princeton Review, so I couldn't charge them and I didn't. So I took a group of six students with me and I didn't charge them at all. And then some of the other Princeton students came and I didn't charge them at all. So my first 36 students were unpaid. I didn't wow. charge them. Yeah, it, I, took, I didn't get my first paying student for another eight weeks. So I, it was it was a sacrifice. Um, it was hard. Um, when the Princeton found out that the students came with me, they threatened to sue me, but I said, look, I'm not charging them. And they said, Oh, well, I guess we can't sue you then. I was like, no, you can't. Um, and then we, we walked away favorably. Like if, if you're not charging them and they, they paid us, go ahead, keep them. And I kept them. And uh, they don't even have an office in Miami anymore. They do a lot of remote and online stuff and a lot of in-school stuff. But I opened my office like three blocks away and people liked what I was selling. And again, because it's smaller, because it's longer, because I got to know the students, it was just, that was my way of competing. I also, oh, I also offered classes at different times. Because again, when you're, when you're in a big company, the model was classes are at this time, because that's the way right. we do it. It's like, well, I'm just going to do classes this time, this time, and this time. And that was the old, that was the first thing that got my own students coming to me. Well, I can do classes at 2.30, I can do classes at 4, I can do classes at 5.30, I can do classes, the flexibility. Because to get a company to do that, they have to lease additional space, they have to find other facilities. They're always so cost averse sometimes that they give away good opportunities. I'd rather not do that. I saw the opportunity, I seized it. So it's not that I, well, I, I, I delivered knowledge, but I also delivered convenience. Sean, I'm going to go back on the non-compete thing just to get a little more clarity, right? Now, non-compete means you said eight weeks you didn't charge anybody. So what no, are the technicalities? Yeah, I, of I didn't charge any of those students ever. Like once once they paid the Prince Review, I made an agreement that I will not charge. Like non-compete clause in a contract says you cannot, you cannot open a competing business for a certain period of time in a certain geographic area. So right. non-compete business means I'm only in business if I'm charging the money. If I'm not charging the money, it's volunteer work. So right. I was basically doing volunteer work for eight weeks. 
then we, I, I talked to their, their lawyers and I had a conversation and they decided, look, one, suing it would be a nightmare because you're pretty good at that. But also we don't view you as competition. So we, we, we waived the non-compete. They, they, after eight weeks, when they realized I was being honorable, I didn't charge the money. They're like, let's let, just let it go. We're, we're going to tear it up. You do you, we'll do us. We have, we're going to focus on our projects. You focus on your projects. And we, I, I'm still friendly with a lot of the people there, even the higher ups. So that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. So uh, in, in, in that case, the non-compete was much longer than eight weeks, right? It was not just it eight was weeks. longer than eight weeks, but because they realized, look, he's not, he didn't, he didn't steal the clients. He's not yeah, charging. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's just doing his own thing. Let him go. And, but there's a lesson in that. If you do it the right, if you're honest and you're not stealing clients, they, you can come to an accommodation. If I had just go in and started starting clients, they would have been right to sue me out of business. But I chose not to do it that way. I chose not to charge them. So right. again, that was a sacrifice. That was tough. That was tough. For those for those three months, I moved back with my parents. So, Great. but they, they respected <laughs> what I was doing. Like I get it. I get I get what you're doing. You got to do this. You got to do this. Stay here for a couple months. Get your feet underground, and then go back out there. And I did it. Great, great one, Sean. So, Sean, after the 36 students, uh, it must, you know, it shouldn't have been difficult for you because of the word of mouth. Uh, is that how you got your exactly. students? Yes. And then I, I focused on SAT and ACT for the first two, three years because LSAT right. is expensive. Not expensive in terms of costs of, of any fixed cost, but expensive in terms of time. Like you, to, to, to do it well, you have to be very good at the test. So it, right. I wanted to make sure I was an expert. So it took, I, I spent, I took every released LSAT five or six times, went over every answer choice before I said, I'm ready to do my own LSAT program. So it did take about two years. And then I, I, I transitioned into that. And now I teach about 60 to 70 LSAT students a year all over the country. Wow. Great. And, um, was it just word of mouth the way you got your students from there on? For yes, you yes. Oh no, I do. I I do. I am active on social media. I do. I do. I do things on LinkedIn. I do things on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I occasionally go to talk to high schools about programs and college admissions, and I'll get some students here and there. But it's mostly it's either word of mouth or or social media. Social media is if you know how to do social media well, um, that's an area that if you don't know how to do well. As an entrepreneur, hire someone to help you because the return on investment is fantastic. Um, and there, you can self, you can, you can self learn. You can learn on YouTube and stuff like that. But there are some really good people in that industry who can do very good things for you quickly. How to leverage TikTok? How to leverage? And TikTok is such so. And people listening in the United States not might might not that get this. TikTok in the United States is mostly idiots just regurgitating stand up comedy. TikTok in India and China is much more qualitative, higher level stuff, a lot of educational stuff, a lot of vocational stuff, a lot of informative stuff. People use TikTok so much more responsibly in other countries than they use it in the United States. And so a lot of my international students come to me through TikTok. Wow. Because the, 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 the information, the audience demands more informative stuff than just waste of time stuff. And I think that's fantastic. So if you can find someone to help you leverage social media, that's something to invest in. It's not that expensive and it's so worth it. Because again, if you're out there, it is you're reestablishing expertise, but you're doing it the right way. Got it, Sean. Sean, you said, you know, you're, uh, you post frequently or regularly on social media. And you said, you know, that's an area where people can probably hire someone else to do it if they can't figure it out. But, you know, when I look at your posts or a lot of other people who are active on social media's posts, it's not very much, right? I mean, they just share their everyday experiences. Uh, it seems pretty straightforward and simple. Uh, so when you say people can hire somebody, uh, are you referring to the lack of time people might have? Or if it's not time, what other expertise one needs? What time, yes. But two, what kind of messages play best where? So, for example, I assume that TikTok was the same all over the world, just people doing dumb things, people falling down. I had no idea 
that in other countries, TikTok is used in a much more professional way, in a much more information-based way, in a much more communicative way of communicating knowledge, ideas, and training. So I had no idea about that. When I learned it, like, I got to leverage that. Um, I didn't pay anyone for that. I learned it from one of my students, one of my international students. So I'm like, why are you on TikTok? He's like, what do you mean? This stuff where people put pictures of their cats? He's like, TikTok is not like that everywhere. I said, oh, that's different. Okay. And I learned that. Not everyone knows that. Not everyone has access to that level of thing. And also, um, and this this does happen a lot to entrepreneurs. They might be very good and passionate people, but they have a hard time talking about themselves. And so constructing a message where you come across, well, you might want to get someone to help you just write that that first couple of posts to get used to it. Yeah. I when my, when I, for my students have this problem, they have to write their college essays. It's so hard for them because they don't want to sound like they're bragging or they come across as too shy or they come across as too arrogant. So for your first couple of posts, hire someone to, or, or get a friend. Read this for me. What do you think? How does it come across? Look at this video. Do I sound too serious? Do I not sound serious enough? Because not everyone can do everything. Right. And everyone who tries to do everything is an idiot, right? You're, no, no one's an expert at everything. So, and I do have that background in marketing at the Princeton Review, so I learned how to do that. But I didn't know all the stuff. I didn't know all the stuff. And there's so much. Like, there are things I could be doing better that I, I don't do. Right? I could have a podcast on law school admissions. I probably should. But I don't, because I don't know how to do that yet. I might have to hire someone or I'm going to have to learn how to do it. And that, oh, that's another thing your listeners might want to understand. You can't do everything all at once. You can't. You have to prioritize. I'm going to focus on this, and then I'm going to move on this, and then I'm going to move on to this. Trying to do everything all at once, that is how you fail. That is absolutely how you fail, and you fail fast. You fail fast. Got it, Sean. Thank you. Sean, so you said, you know, right about now you teach about 60 to 80 students uh, on a yearly basis. LSAT, right, yes. yeah. So uh, is it is one-on-one or is it group classes? Small groups. I, I, I like the small group dynamic for both SAT and LSAT. For SAT, I have about, I usually get about 250 students a year. And they, they cycle through the program. Um, small groups, six people. Um, I tend to attract students who are motivated or parents who are motivated to have their students well. Um, so, but it, that's enough where I get that it's, it's big enough to where it's sustainable, but small enough where I get to know everybody's name, everyone's goals, everyone's GPA, what, how they, what they really, where they fit in. So I would never want to be to the point where my students are customers and not my students. Like, that's just not, that's not why I did this. I want to get to know these people. Like there are students who took my SAT course six years ago, and now they're in my LSAT course. Or students who, um, I'm, now I'm old enough, some of my LSAT students who were 30, I'm now teaching their kids for SAT. So that tells me I'm doing something right, but that's what I want, that ability to connect with people long-term. I know that not every business can do that, but to the extent that you can, you should. Sean? We all had, you know, the effect of the virus in 2020. And uh, one of the industries that was affected or, you know, kind of which had to change a lot of things was the education industry, right? Um, There were people who were doing online classes. There weren't people who were doing online classes. What was it like for you? Uh, What was it before the pandemic? What was it like during the pandemic? And how has it changed now? The Before the pandemic, we had... I did not do online instruction. Um, there was no there was no need. Like I had students who did do, who who came to class in Miami Dade County, where where our office is. They shut tutoring services down. We were not allowed to do in person classes at all for six months. So I had to switch online in two days, and I was able to do it in two days. Um, I knew immediately that some of my students were just not handling it well. So that became an issue. So I just said, look, we're going to do the best we can. The minute we can open up, the day they allow us to open up, we're going to open up back to in-person testing. I still offer online courses now because I became good at it. I learned how to do it. I practiced. I would record things. I'd send them people. What do you think about this? What do you think about, oh, you need a better whiteboard. You need to do this better. You need to do this better. And it it took some time. But now online testing, teaching is is a fundamental part of the program. 
I simulcast and record all of my classes and I send them to all of my students. Um, because now I realize some students have to miss class because they have games or they have extracurriculars or they have family events. So the online thing just is just another value added thing. Plus, I also like to send the, I also send recordings of my classes to all the parents so they know that the kids are learning. We're not wasting time here. And it became a really good way of marketing because parents will share my lesson. Look, this is what this guy does. If it's for your kid, great. If it's not, no. But this is what you can expect. And it, that there's accountability there. The parents know I'm teaching. I'm not watching them do busy work. There are no worksheets. There's no busy work. We're here to learn. And it's a, and I keep it a very professional. We have fun. We joke around a little about things, but we're not here to mess around. We are here to make sure that you don't have to pay for college or to pay for law school. So the COVID thing did hurt. And it hurt not that, oh, I also stopped charging my students because you just can't. Um, I didn't charge. I remember the first month of COVID, I made $200 because it was someone who had just, was, it was a continued pay. And that, that scared, that, that was frightening. Um, but then I said, no, no, we got to make this work. And we just, I just kept grinding and grinding and finding a way. And what I found was even the, the students who did not respond well to online in person, they'd come in person, but then they'd rewatch the video. And that was what able, was able to keep them, to keep them going. And the, the minute we were able to come back, everyone came back and we, we moved on. So COVID was a good learning experience. It was a terrible experience for the students, but it was a good learning experience for me. I hate to say that it was a tragedy, but it was a good way of learning how to help my students deal with tragedy, how to help my students deal with emergency and their parents. But what I also learned was COVID was terrible for, 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 for a lot of instruction. A lot of these schools did their best, but still failed the kids. Math, math skills globally have dropped precipitously. And that's something that I don't think anyone wants to even discuss. I don't think, I think adults are afraid to admit how bad we messed up when it came to kids. Like it's a problem we know, but no one wants to know how bad the problem is. Right? You know, when your car rattles and you're like, I don't even want to know. Right? I didn't want to know. I'll ignore it. Right? Or when you hear that drip, I don't want to hire a plumber. You know, you just, you want to ignore it. I've seen it in my classes. Kids don't know how to factor. They don't know how to deal with fractions. They don't know grammar. And I don't blame them. And I don't even blame the teachers because they were doing their best. But we have to do something. I'm doing whatever I can in education to help these kids catch up. Because the further they fall behind, the worse it's going to get. The worse it's going to get. So, you know, math matters. Math matters. And and right. we have to find a way. I don't know what we're going to do. I don't, I don't pretend the solutions. But... It's a conversation that no one seems to be willing to have anywhere, whether it's, I mean, I, I, I'm not as up on South Indian news as I should be, um, but I don't know how well they're addressing it there. I know they're not addressing it well in the United States. I know that they, they're trying to do things in, in Korea, in South Korea and in Finland, because teachers are given a lot of freedom in those countries. But as educators, we have to find something. I don't know what it is to help these kids catch up. Got it, Sean. Yeah, that was something that I was going to ask you. You know, how did it impact your programs? Did it have to go even longer or did you spend more time? I, had to, students go, I had to go longer and I had to go back to fundamentals that five years ago, kids knew. Five years, five years ago, kids knew how to factor. They knew how to handle fractions. They knew how percents work. They knew how ratios work. Completely glossed over. I have to go back and teach stuff I never thought I'd have to teach. And again, it's not their fault. They have to learn this because you can't do calculus if you can't factor. You yeah. can't. That's, that's all calculus is, is factoring. Um, you can't do a derivative if you can't factor. If you don't know how exponents work, you can't be a statistician. And if you can't be a statistician, you can't be an engineer. So they're so behind that I had to fundamentally change the material. And that's why I like being small because I was able to respond immediately. I didn't have to go through a product development. I didn't have to beta test anything. I immediately implemented it and it worked. So that's one of the, I'm, I'm so happy I'm able to do this because I'm small enough to do it. So I'm big enough to have an influence, but small enough that I can respond quickly. Great. And Sean, uh, you know, you got into online uh, just to, you know, kind of 
as a makeshift arrangement until you could get back to your in-person classes. But today, what's the split like? How, what's the percentage of students that you work with in class and what's the percentage of students that you work online with? For SAT and ACT, it is still substantially an in-person thing. My okay. international students obviously appear online. My international students also seem to be better adapted to online learning because maybe in their countries they did the online learning better than we yep. did here. And so they are very receptive. And it's one thing to know how to be an online teacher because you do have to learn how to do that. You have to learn how to engage the students. But students haven't been taught how to be good online students. They haven't right. learned how to ask questions. They haven't learned how to hit the hand raise button. They haven't learned to ask a general question. So I encourage my students. I had to teach my students how to be good online students. My international students came in knowing that. My Florida students didn't. So I had to, I had to pull that out of them. So my international students are, are exclusively, um, so I'd say about, about 25 to 30% of my SAT students are online. The rest are in person. And about 60% of my LSAT students are online because it's a national footprint now. I teach everywhere. And Great. if you can't handle online learning in law school, you're not going to be able to be a lawyer because depots are now online and everything's online now. Right, right. Sean, you also, you know, touched upon an important point. You know, the way you engage with the students changes the moment you go online. In person, it's very easy. You're, you know, physically present. So what are the changes that you have to make your teaching style to make it more engaging online? I make sure that I'm not just asking who knows this, but I'll ask the online person. So what do you think the answer is? Well, how do I do this next thing? What kind of passage is this? You help me get through this question by keeping them constantly engaged, by making sure, hey, did you get that? Just always talk. You have to talk to an online student three times as much as you talk to an in-person student to make sure that they are connected. Because I can make eye contact with an in-person student and they know. Like they know I'm, I'm watching them. They know I'm engaged. They know I'm looking at it. But the online person, you've got to be repeating the name two, three times, four times a class, just, and it, all of them, just, you know, you're with me, you get that. Greeting them, how you doing? I'll see you next week. You know, just those things. Learning about them as students. Hey, how was practice? Like just knowing that you're, knowing that you care about them as people, not just as someone on a screen. Like getting to know yeah. their personality, getting to know what they're involved in. How was work? Stuff like that. Communicate for five or 10 minutes before class. Because there's, a, especially for kids, Oh, I'm just there to learn this. No, no, you're still part of this class. Even though you're over there, you're part of us. You're part of us. Right. Got it, Sean. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, you know, when it uh, comes to online, uh, during the pandemic, right, one of the biggest things that we've spoken about is, is to keep the video online, you know, video on or video off, you know, and stuff like that. I know for teachers, it becomes doubly difficult when the videos are off. So uh, what was it for you like? You may, you had a rule that the students had to keep the video on or you were okay with students going off video? I was okay with students going off video because it's not the same for me as it is for a regular teacher because my students are here either voluntarily or because they come to realize it's important. Right. So right. Um, I don't, I, I'm okay either way. Audio has to be on. No muting, no muting. I want, I want to, I want to talk to you. I want to talk to you. We, we're going to talk. Um, so yeah, I was okay with it because I have a different kind of student than a regular teacher. If I was a regular teacher, video would be on because what I did learn that a lot of my students got good at during COVID was online poker. And I don't want to see that during class. So I, I would rather, I'd rather, I, I, I'm going to let them do what's comfortable, but my students are a bit different than the regular school student. I get that. I can treat them a little bit differently. And I, but I do make sure we're talking. I always make sure we're talking. Got it, Sean. Sean, when you spoke about you posting online, being active online, did it start because of the pandemic or were you even oh, active? I've always done that. I know it has to say, because I had worked in marketing, I always understood that having the name out there always matters. And not just, hey, my classes are starting, but giving information. Hey, here's some, here's some law schools that you might want to consider that you haven't thought about. Here's some Great. colleges that cost a lot less than you think. Here are the upcoming LSAT dates. Here are the upcoming SAT dates. Um, here's what you here's what you really need to do in your college essay. Here's why some colleges really like work experience more than club experience. So just those kinds of value-added things to let people know there's more to it than just this. And having the name out there, not just as promoting myself, but as a source of information, a source of expertise, being a source of knowledge. 
Sean, another thing that's kind of rampant today is something called as test anxiety faced by students, right? Now, um, as teachers, you not only have to be equipped with whatever you have to already be equipped with, but these these things are an additional responsibility as a teacher because it's not like you've got class to address this and that separately. So how are you dealing with uh, the whole test anxiety that are faced by the students? It is a legitimate phenomenon because I think some of these students really do realize the, the stakes of these tests are very high academically and financially. I One of the reasons I lengthen my course to double, triple, even four times the length of other courses is because I want them confident. I want them to make six, seven, eight practice tests. I, want, I don't want them being surprised. And I also do it through scheduling tests. I always schedule exams, hoping that my students do the best they can, but realizing if they don't, we have another time. We have another bite at the apple. I don't like cramming for the last minute test. I don't do it. I don't let my students do it. So we spread it out. We help them cope. We build their confidence. I let them know, you've seen everything. You have to understand that you've seen everything. Don't let this test frighten you. Don't be your own worst enemy. I never minimize test anxiety because I know it's real. I don't say it's all in your head because it's not. It's, a, it's something I let them know. Don't be afraid of it. Don't be ashamed of it. We have ways to help you cope. Longer courses and scheduling tests so that we don't have to put all of our eggs in one basket. Because that's a big source of anxiety. Oh, if I don't do well on this test, I'm never getting law school. No, no. We'll take a test six months early. See how you do. If you don't do well enough, do it again. So it's a legitimate phenomenon. And we do it through extending the course and by responsible scheduling. Great. Great. Uh, Sean, you've got about 25% of your uh, students, you know, the international students, or uh, sorry, when it comes to LSAT, 25% of your LSAT students, you do online, 25-30% because, you know, they're all over the nation. Uh, what are the tools that you use uh, when it comes to online teaching? My, I use WebEx as the platform rather than Zoom. I just like it more for teaching. I know it's more expensive and that's why no one likes to use it. Um, but their Blackboard feature is just better. Their video capacity is longer. It's more secure. Um, and I make, ex I, I mean, I, I make extensive use, obviously, of, of, of document sharing programs, Dropbox and things like that. So students have access to things. Um, and by that, that I, I try to keep it as simple as possible because that's just another stress. If, I have to, if they have to master a whole other kind of technology on top of mastering the material, no. Like I want them, I want, I want the, I want them to be the technology. I want the technology part to be seamless. I want them to not have to think about it. Are they the best program? WebEx I like. Is my document sharing the best? Probably not, but they know how to use it. And that's something else I have to learn how to do over the course of the next couple of months. Can, how do I get better with that part of it? Because again, you can't do everything all at once. Right, right. And Sean, at the Knowledge Cooperative, are you a one-man company running the entire thing or do you have a team with you oh I, I i'm the only one who teaches and does course development but i you know i outsource bookkeeping i outsource billing i outsource um the rudimentary day-to-day -day stuff um but as far as developing programs and teaching that's me that's me because that's what I, I that's one it's what i like to do but Two, because the, it's these students' future, it's my name. I, I need to be. I need to get to know them. I need to see them. I need. I need to talk to them. And I also need them to know that I'm on their side. Like it's not just someone. It's not some college kid who's doing this for a job. This is how we feed my family. So I need you to do well, so I can feed my family. So I want to make sure you do well. And that that level of trust absolutely has an impact. There is another test prep company that just opened opened in my building two years ago. Is the worst mistake that company ever made because they've lost about a third of their students because they just come upstairs now. Because <laughs> I'm the only Wait. one who teaches. So they're like, oh, what'd you do today? Oh, I, I went to this company and they, they did this and they watched me do my homework. They graded my homework. Oh, what'd you do? Well, I just watched Sean's video. So people were watching my videos going to their company. Parents are like, we're, gonna, we're done paying them. We're just going to pay Sean. Um, so that idea that I teach my own classes is hugely important. Now, I know that that's not possible in a larger scale. I know that's not. And I have friends who are in business like, you know, you have to start to teach other people how to teach. And I said, maybe, but not yet. Not yet. Right, right. I was going to get there because you said you're the only teacher in your company. Now, has there, have you faced situations where you'd have to turn down students because, you know, you only have so much time and yes. you are very uh, 
kind of, you know, you say that six is the total number of students that you want to have in a batch. Yes. So well, have you hit your upper limit in terms of number yes, of students? Yes, what, what I've learned to do is, well, I, what, again, I, I, I haven't had to, I, it's been a while since I've had to turn any down because what I've just done is add classes. I used to not teach on Fridays. Now I teach on Fridays because there's right. a real demand for student athletes. Um, I don't teach three classes a day. I teach five classes a day. So it allows me to, to not have to say that. During COVID, I had to because during COVID, it was just impossible to keep everything going. I, I can't do everything online. And it would seem counterintuitive, but a bigger online classroom is worse than a bigger in-person classroom because it's harder to stay engaged with everyone because it's yeah. twice, the, three times to work to engage an online student and is it in-person student. So because of the online, I had to wait. I had to say, no, no, I can't. I don't want to do many more than six kids online. Now, I, six is the ideal. I do have some larger classes because they've all, they've organized, parents have organized groups and said, we all want to come together. So I'll have, my classroom only seats eight kids. So wait to the maximum. Got it, Sean. Uh, Sean, you spoke about, you know, posting online and, you know, where you said apart from time, time is not the only problem where others may face. They might also, you know, face problems constructing the messaging and what kind of messaging to post and stuff like that. So uh, what what has been your learning? Uh, you said you also had some experience with, uh, uh, you know, marketing in the Princeton Review. Um, so but, you know, that's a company that you're marketing for. But as an individual, what are the things that you have to kind of change about the way you marketed yourself? Well, I had to make, I had to obviously, well, Princeton Review, because they are enormously well-known, right. they were selling themselves as an institution. You come to us and we will, we got everything. I right. had to sell it as I special, I have specialized knowledge, right? right? I'm selling, I'm selling what I know and I'm selling what I know. So I'm, I'm going to use my knowledge for you. So it had to be much more personal, much more personal. And oddly, because of Bigger companies get to take advantage of things like humor that a smaller person can't, right? I can't be joking around. What Prince Reeve, they encouraged humor in the marketing. Have a little fun with it sometimes. Be a little informal. When we would do parent meetings, they tell us, don't wear a suit and tie. You know, go and be, make it a conversation. Wear the Prince Review shirt and a pair of khakis. Do not dress up too much because then it's, you're a dean. As a smaller company, it's kind of the opposite. I have to be a little bit more formal. I have to be a little bit more more um serious in the construct um i have to seem like well it's just him but he's really good he knows what he's talking about it's all about the message it's all about the information so yes you have to be i i think i had to be a little a lot more formal than i was a lot more informative a lot less fun a lot less humorous than i was when i was at a big company because the big company's like hey come to us we're not this giant scary company we're fun and cool here's like i'm me and I got to work my butt off for you. Here's who I am. So I had to change that level a lot. Wow. Very interesting, that one. Uh, Sean, you know, from what I've seen, uh, test prep instructors post, right, on their social media, uh, I've roughly seen about two to three types of posts. One is a success story of their existing student. And another one is a direct promotional message, you know, where they say, you know what, I'm starting classes now and stuff like that. And another one is slightly offbeat, you know, just sharing a random stuff, but then connecting it to something relevant. It's not very directly connected. So what is your approach? Do you have a structure? Okay, you know what? I'm going to post so many of student success stories, so and so. I've never done a student success story. Um, I have some, and I had I just had an LSAT student text me. Um, uh, fortunately, because I get to know my students so well, a lot of them just do it for me. They'll just post, hey, I, I got this, and thank you. Um, I do. I have to because it'd be irresponsible not to. My courses are starting at this date, right. but what I do a lot of is look. This is what a college essay should be about. This is what this is what right. law school admissions offices are really looking for. Stop applying to the same twelve colleges that everyone else applies to. Here's why: the importance of demographics, the importance of your major in college admissions, and a lot of content that is that there's not that they might not know. Um, that kind of stuff, um, how-to sort of guides, uh, nuts and bolts stuff, but very little student success stories just because I, because they become generic. You know what I'm saying? Like everyone's got them. And I've done this long enough that I know I'm responsible for some of the success of my students, but I've also had some really bright kids and they were going to do well no matter what. I'm honest about that. 
But if I if I went above and beyond, and a, a student will say, "Do you mind sharing that?" And they'll share it on their own. But a lot of it, I'll, and a, a lot of information. Hey, parents, realize the deadline is to register for the ACT is this, and I'll post it on social media. Or, you know, University of Miami is doing campus visits this month. Sign up. You want these summer programs are available. These are the schools that this is when the college fair is. This is when the law school fair is. Those kinds of sort of industry-wide information that they don't get that 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 they don't because they're not looking for it. So I'm their source of that. So I, I, that's how I construct it. I do the announcements, but I also do things that show that I'm on top of this industry. Great, great, got it, Sean. Sean. Thank you so much for all of the information. Of course, that you, a, so you, are, you are very good at this. You know how to engage and how to ask good questions. You, you are good at your job. You are very good. Thank I you, appreciate son. this. I've been interviewed before and it was terrible. You are good at your job. And I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Sean, you're not done yet. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> I just uh, did a... So this is like, you know, the conversation format, you know. Oh, that's right. Not the other one. Yes, yes, yes. You're right. You're right. You're right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, some of the questions might repeat, but uh, please okay. bear with me. Uh, you just have to be very uh kind of like straight succinct and... i know no i know this is for the clips i get it i got it this is for the clips yeah okay yeah yeah you were you know what you were already very concise and crisp so you know i don't have to say that i'm just saying it that's, you know that's law school law school makes you concise and crisp yeah <laughs> not a lot of them because uh to have covered so much of information usually it would have taken me double the time of what i've taken uh but wow uh, I was just thinking, oh, oh, it's just 57 minutes. Have I covered everything? Am I missing something? So that's the kind of thoughts that was going on in my mind. Great. I'm, uh, so these are the questions. Before I shoot the questions, I'm just going to uh, think out loud with you for a couple of minutes so that both of us are on uh, the same page and you probably have a few seconds to gather your thoughts. Um, these are going to be uh, listicle sort of uh, you know, answers that I'm expecting from you. Say, for example, three things where new uh new teachers going on their own should not spend and um three very underrated expenses that you can go ahead and you know do it with full confidence something like this and um the thing that you spoke about uh alleviating anxiety by just course lengthening i've never heard anybody talk on those lines they spoke about breathing techniques and stuff like that but i'd like to hear you talk about how to, as an instructor, what you can do to help students with their anxiety. So if you can share your methods, that's one thing. And what are the three things that parents like to hear from instructors more more often than not? Um, and uh, what are the most common objections that you get from parents, or not rather objections, rather apprehensive questions from parents that you know that you get, and uh, probably how you can navigate those questions. So these are the th- oh, yeah, and another one is. Uh, as a as an instructor who's just coming out from a big um, you know academy like a instant review or you know big companies, what are the three things best practices and three things kind of you know stay clear of? So these are the things that I'm having in my mind, Sean. So if you think that you can share some of some other things that I haven't covered, please let me know. You know I can ask okay. you those questions. So I will start off. I'm gonna, uh, you know, you'll see me pause for like three seconds because I'm gonna keep clicking mark clip here so that it kind of. I got your home. Yeah. Okay. So here's my first question. So Sean, what are the things that uh, new instructors who are starting on their own should not spend their money on to start off? An expensive office. Your students are not here for luxury. A second thing would be. Um, Printing. Get your students to bring their tablets and laptops. For years, I was spending twenty, thirty thousand dollars a year on printing. No need for that. And the third thing would be a really expensive marketing campaign. Don't launch like that. Build your expertise first, then then market that. Market your expertise, not that you're you're a new company. Here's my second question: What are the three underrated expenses an instructor should probably you know? reconsider a good online teaching platform i i I, webex is worth it webex is worth the difference in cost over the other competing programs its failure rate is very low my students have no problem accessing the information or the data spend the money on that um a good website an interactive website i know it's easy to design your own and pay 79 dollars, but you with a little bit more you can link things and and add videos and make a website that's not, it's not, I wouldn't say value added, 
but it's it's accessible and you, you, you're you're drawing students in where they can do a lot of things with your website. And the third thing is, I wouldn't call it financial, but invest your own time and continue to get better at what you do. Set send two, set, set a day, an hour or two to research what your students are doing and to see if you can find new ways to teach the same thing better. Great stuff. Sean, what are the top three pain points that you have right now as a business when it comes to tech? The, the top three pain points are this. One, being able to integrate all of the things together. That's hard. That takes more time for me than it should. I'm not the most tech savvy person. That's something I have to get better at. The other one is, again, the failure rate is higher than it should be. I love WebEx, but my 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 Wi-Fi goes out all the damn time and it, it is intrusive. I don't know if I have to invest in a better thing or just learn how to adapt. And the third thing I have to do, uh, the, the, the pain point is learning how much is out there. I mean, it's not a pain point of, of financial, it's time. There are so many ways to communicate as instructors that I haven't even thought of yet. And I know other people have. So that's something we need to communicate better with each other, collaborate more, share things. Yeah. Uh, Sean, as an instructor, what can one do to help with students test anxiety? Test anxiety is a legitimate and real thing. It's not in their head. It is important and it should never be minimized. What we have done, what I have done to help my students address it is this. I've lengthened, I've extended the length of the course. It's not a six week thing, all or nothing. I would never do that to a kid. Second, I always instill confidence in every class. I remind them, you're gonna see this question on the test. I absolutely guarantee it. Let's do five of them, let's do 10 of them. So they know there's gonna be no surprises at all. And third, I let them scheduling exams. I never let my schedule students schedule exams as a last minute thing. We push the preparation out. Most students start as juniors, even seniors, I encourage my students to start as sophomores so we can push out the learning and they build those cons and they never have to take an all or nothing test and they don't go in anxious. Sean, I don't know how to, uh, you know, uh, kind of ask you this question, but I want that uh, piece again from you, you know, like three points. You said uh, instead of doing so and so, you uh, remember students name and you talk to the parents, you be accessible to parents, you know, that piece of information that you gave was amazing. So, um, uh Let's, uh, how do we rephrase uh, that question? Oh, like the things that I make sure that, the, how I set myself apart. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Three, three uh, qualities uh, as an instructor. Yes. Yeah, I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to ask you something yeah. like that. Okay. Sean, uh, what are the three qualities as an, as an instructor that you think that has made you kind of, you know, stand out and uh, offset all of the cost reduction practices that you did in the beginning? Make it personal. Get to know your students, get to know their hopes, their dreams, their ambitions, and get to know that you share them. I want you to do well. I need you to do well. This is important for both of us. Investment. Second, be accessible. Give parents your cell phone. Let them know. Let them know they can always reach you. Don't you know that? Never outsource that because this is a, this is not just an obligation. It it's a financial burden on them, but it's also an enormous source of stress because they want the best for their kids. They want to be able to talk to someone. Be accessible. And the third thing I do is I, I send videos of my classes to my parents every day so they know that their kids are learning. They see what their kids are teaching. They see that I'm not wasting their time or money and that I get to know their kid. Those are the three things. Be accessible always. Sean, what are the most most asked questions by you know the father or the mother of a student that joins your course before they join the course? And what are the things that you say? First thing is, they say is, how much can my son or daughter improve? What, what, like, what are we looking at? And I say, well, if they do what I say, I, in Florida, we have something called the Florida Bright Future Scholarship. If they do what I say, they're going to go to college for free. That's the first thing I say. The second thing I say is, um, yes, it's just me, but that's a strength, not a weakness. There's like, well, if it's just you, how do you, do, how do you keep track? It's like, well, I keep my classes small. I get to know everyone's name. So that's the second thing. Yes, it's just me, but that's a good thing, not a bad thing. And the third thing they ask is, well, how do they how do they find time for all of this? And that's why I say, well, that's I don't keep them here for three hours. They're here for 75 minutes twice a week. They find the time because we stay flexible. So those are the three things. They're worried about their students' time commitments, how much they can improve, and this idea of me getting to know their kids instead of outsourcing. And Sean, when it comes to the knowledge cooperative of your business, what are the three apps on your phone that you most go back to? Facebook, because I have a Facebook business page. I'm always updating that. Twitter, sharing information. And LinkedIn, 
which you wouldn't think makes sense for a tutor, but I'm talking to parents. And if parents see me being a source of information about college and admissions, it's treating it as a, as, as a business thing. And I always tell my students this, if you do my course, it will be the best paying part-time job you ever had. You can make a half a million dollars doing this. So if we treat it as a professional relationship, as much as an academic one, that's why LinkedIn is so important. This is a business too. Sean, in the beginning of this conversation, you spoke about how you spoke to a bunch of other small business owners when it came to marketing. What are the three wackiest ideas that you've come across and you've implemented for your business? I didn't think this would work, but one of my, the chiropractor across the street is like, I always do the first session free. Just have, have offer free classes. See if people like it because not everyone's for everyone. So that one I, I thought was counterintuitive. It's like, maybe I'm giving them the form here. No, they all come back. They all come back. Um, the second one was you have to be there every day. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, you have to market every day. I was like, won't that get tired? Something you don't realize that no one's there every day. If you, if they're, if you're not there the day they are, you lose them. So every day you're marketing. I thought it was overkill. They were right. I was wrong. Um, and the third one was don't, you don't have to market in the, in the normal ways. You don't have to market the way everyone else is marketing. For example, a lot of people do their student success stories. I choose not to do that because they've, they've become white noise. No one cares anymore. Um, so I, I try to mark message, not my student success, but my knowledge, because my knowledge is what gets the success anyway. So, and I learned that from a doctor. He's like, don't talk, do doctors don't talk about outcomes. They talk about their education experience. You should do that too. And I did. Awesome, Sean. Uh, great. I think I'm done. Uh, is there anything that you think that you can add that I probably didn't cover? No, you were very thorough. This was this was fantastic. I appreciate this. This was, this was a great experience. Awesome. Great, Sean. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for sharing all the things that you did today. If you choose to air it, let me know so I can listen. Definitely. Yeah, you will be uh, intimidated. We'll post you on LinkedIn. Uh, sorry, we'll tag you on LinkedIn. I'll send out an email to you and uh, we will be in touch. Thank you, Sean. Have a great day. Bye. This podcast is brought to you by Edison OS, a no-code edtech platform to operate an online education business. Knowledge entrepreneurs can use Edison OS to sell online courses from their own websites, manage online masterclasses, launch mobile learning apps, sell online practice tests for competitive exams, run online learning communities, digitizing their offline tutoring business, Use it as a learning management system and a lot more cases in the domain of knowledge commerce.